Hey everybody. Going through this time leading up to Christmas, we've been going through the first chapter in the Gospel of John, which is his explanation of what happened when Jesus came. Usually churches will read from Matthew or Luke's Gospel that has, tells the story. And instead, John tells it a bit more abstractly. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it's a little less. Like, there was this girl, and um, in John 1, the verses that we're going to talk about this morning um, revolve around this one, um, John 1, 14, and we're just going to look mainly at the first sentence. So I'll read the whole verse, and that's this. The Word, that is the Son of God who became the man Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that is an abstract way of talking about the nativity story, and the baby Jesus, and the manger, and all those things. This is a drawing that my daughter did during my last sermon. <coughs> In which you'll note that one of the angels didn't necessarily have a great night um, before this. Or maybe, m maybe as one of Justin Bieber's guardian angels from a former thing. Um, but the, the point is, is that, you know, this is, this is what happened, right? Jesus, the son, by be being born as Jesus, came into our world. This is like this amazing, right, Christmas thing. And I've heard lots of Christmas sermons in my life, and almost every time we talk about Jesus coming, at some point somebody says, isn't it amazing, incredible, that he came into our world, right? And people who are sentimental of spirit go, yeah, people who are cynical of spirit be like, that's so sentimental. And Yet, but this is like, you know, every year it's kind of like, came. and as I studied these verses, verses 10 and 11, 9, 10, 11, and verse 14, this week, I became growingly uncomfortable with those five words. I was like, ah, I don't think I like that phrase anymore. Because, and I'm not trying to make Christmas sermon snobs out of you, on one level, that phrase is totally right. On a general colloquial level. It's perfectly true. There's nothing wrong with it. It's totally right. But you take that the wrong way. You take it the way the human heart is pre-programmed to really take it. And it is twice false and entirely damnable. You take it the wrong way, and that could be said by Satan himself. You, you can pick this up a little bit if you read the verses that come just a little bit before it. In verses 10 and 11. That is, he, the Word, the Son of God who became the man Jesus. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. He created the world, and though he created the world, the world didn't recognize its creator. He came to that which was his, and his own did not receive him. Th that is, he did come in our world. Jesus did not become—the the, the Son of God, the Word, did not become the man Jesus to come into our world. He took on flesh and became the man Jesus to come into his world. 
He, and, and that verse says, he was already in this world as the light of the word of the eternal son of creation that is the light of all humans, gives light to everyone. Revelation was already pre present. It was already sufficient. It was already here. And though we were created by him, we didn't even recognize our creator. And then he became incarnate as the man Jesus to come into his world. Now, that's actually an enormously important distinction. It, it really separates humanity profoundly in, in this. If you believe, if you really believe Jesus came to our world, that is, Jesus came to your life, into your world, into your experiences, into, into my life, he is an intruder to the extent to which you don't like what he wants to do with his life, which you call your life, and his world that you call your world, and his creation that you call your surroundings. Does that make sense? And so he comes off like Jesus enters into, we think it's our world, and in comes Jesus, and he comes into our world, and we see him doing that, and we're like, wait a second, what's going on here? And it seems like he comes uninvited, seems like he's demanding. It seems like he's strangely angry. It seems like he's controlling and judgmental and unreasonable and maybe straight up mad crazy. The minute you realize that he didn't come into your world or my world, he came into his world, all of a sudden the perspective really changes. All of a sudden you're like, yeah, well, it's his world. He's the owner. I mean, he, yeah, he's very directing, but it's his, he's the director. Yeah, he's infuriated, but it's his world, and look at what we're doing. Like, he's kind of rightly infuriated. He's very decisive, but not controlling. It's—he's in control. He's just doing something. That's just called being decisive when you're in control, and people normally like that in a boss, right? He's particular, but not nutty. He's reasonable, and given that we seem to think it's our world, and it's really his world, he's actually profoundly charitable and really kind and understanding given the circumstances. All of that lays out straight away on the simple disjunction of whether or not it's our world or his world. You see, John takes a number of verses here in John 1 to set up the entire message of Jesus, the whole message of our gospel, to focus on this very simple distinction which divides all of humanity, which is whether or not you and I think it is his world or our world. If you, if you understand what John is saying, the difference is huge. Sorry, that's not a very good joke, isn't it? You'll begin to understand that he isn't—Jesus isn't micromanaging your life when he tells you to do stuff. He's not. He's telling you to rightly use his life that he gave you. Which, if you believe it's his life that he gave you, the concept that he would have a significant amount of say over it, that is a decisive amount of say over it, you might not like it. We might not like it. And you might actually believe it's false. But if Jesus exists, and if he is the creator, and if this is his world, then he does, then, then your life is his life, and he does have decisive say in it. Does that make sense? Now, for some of you, that's totally chill. You're like, okay, I get that. I'm, I'm a Christian. I get that. It's his world. It's not our world. It's his life. I, my life belongs to Jesus. I should ask, what would Jesus do or something? And I'm cool with that. That works for me. But some of you are like, okay, I get that. 
but I'm not particularly spiritual, and here's what I know. I'm going to walk out that door, and Jesus isn't going to be like right there in Toby and like, you should do this, you should do that. I'm like, it's not going to be a direct consulting relationship. Like, in some sense, my life has to be mine. Like, my life is my life, right? I mean— and the answer is, yes, that's true. Your life is your life. It's okay to refer to your life as my life. You just need to be really careful what you mean by my. As careful as being clear as what you mean by our. Because my can refer to a number of very different relationships. In English, it's a simple possessive, right? And yet, there's a lot of different mys, right? There's my teddy bear, my job, my boots, my friend, my car, my dinner, my child, my hobby, my husband or wife, my friend, my sermon, my God. And if you cannot distinguish a number of very different meanings to the use of my there, we got problems. We got problems. There's this great passage in C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, which is about this, like, over-demon Uncle Screwtape writing letters to this younger demon about how to destroy people. They call them patients, right? And where he discusses one of the critical points of tempting human beings to be destroyed spiritually is how we get them to believe in the concept of my. And this is a short section. Let me read it to you. So this is Uncle Screwtape, the demon, writing to another demon about how to destroy humans. He says, we, that is we demons, teach them not to notice the different senses of the possessive pronoun, the finely graded differences that run from my boots through my dog, my servant, my wife, my dog, I'm sorry, my father, my master, my country, to my God. They can be taught to reduce all of these senses to that of my boots, the my of ownership. Even in the nursery, a child can be taught to mean by my teddy bear, not the one that receives my affections with whom I stand in a special relation. For that is what the enemy, that's God, the enemy will teach them to mean if we're not careful, but the bear that I can pull to pieces if I like. How many times have you heard a kid say that? How many times have you said that? It's mine, so if I want to destroy it and set it on fire, I can. Right? And at the other end of the scale, we have taught men to say, my God, in a sense that is not really different from my boots. Meaning, the God on whom I have a claim for my distinguished services, and whom I exploit from the pulpit, the God I have put into a corner for my use. And all the time, the joke is that the word mine, in the fully possessive sense, cannot be uttered by human beings about anything. In the long run, either our father, that is the devil, or the enemy, that is God, will say mine of each thing that exists, and especially of each man. They will find out in the end, never fear to whom their time, their souls, and their bodies really belong, and certainly not to them, whatever happens. That's an entirely biblical understanding of mine. And when you say, it's Jesus' world, I'm part of Jesus' world, I'm one of his creations, I am, I am his, but I'm also mine, it's perfectly fine to talk about my life. But you had better get dead on, straight up, clear about what my in that phrase means. And it does not mean the same as my boots. 
let me try to clarify this by telling a couple of stories. Um, ima- imagine for a minute that you're in a small group and the small group gets together for like a Christmas dinnery kind of thing. And because it's Christmas, everybody kind of goes all out and they actually buy the truffles and they get the whatever and, um, you know, you're having wine. Though you would never have wine, though we certainly don't forbid that and do what you want. Um, and so you're just, you're having this really nice time. And then this, this kind of weird guy just kind of comes in the house. Like the door's unlocked because people are showing up. And this, and he, you know, like nobody's ever met this guy before and it's your house. And he starts, he starts kind of like walking around the party, sort of being weird. And at first he just starts making comments about the house. Like how he wouldn't do things that way. And I don't really, why is that couch here? And then he's like, why aren't there more cats? I mean, I really think there should be more cats. And birds, definitely more birds, you know? And he's, you're kind of like, and then he just starts going and walking between people and just sort of like randomly sniffing things. People, foods, just items in the house. He's just like, and then he starts saying, Every, everything in this house is mine. And he like weirdly and kind of obnoxiously looks at like the women in the room and it's like very, they're clearly getting physically uncomfortable, right? And then, and then he like starts taking things from people. So he's walking around, he like takes their plate away and like their glass and like takes, pours it together and like starts drinking. He's, like, put, sta- he's stacking everybody's plate and like taking it over to his part of the kitchen. He like pushes stuff off to make a place for his plates. And he's like, these are my plates. And you should—you're all mine, and you're like, you're like, oh my gosh, this guy's kind of a little nutty, right? And, um, and then he goes over to the dip, and he like, he like puts his hand in it, and like gouges out a bunch, and he licks it, and then he rubs it back into the dip, you know, and he's like, it's my, it's my dip, you know? And you're like, oh my gosh, this guy, right? And, um, yeah. And then, like, just when you think, like, this has got to end it, so he, like, starts being like, all right, we're going to play some games. And he's just pushing people, like, into the living room, and he starts creating these, like, outlandishly, literally insane games. And you're like, maybe, maybe he has some medicine in his pocket, you know? <clears throat> and finally, you're like, so, sir, um, before we start the games, there's actually— we're waiting for two more guests. They'll be here in just a minute. They, they're going to be dressed in a blue outfit. And they have this really great car with lights on it. Um, and they should be here any minute. Um, so, huh, I, that's, that's not—might be interesting for a minute to be at that party. So it'll be a little unnerving, right? Now, in a couple weeks, I'm going to go away for like five days, and Luke, the pastoral intern, is going to be um, like house-sitting for me because he, I think, platonically is in love with my dog. And, <coughs> but who, if you've seen my dog, who couldn't be? Who could be? Samoyed, come on. So, and he's got his winter coat. He's so snuggly. So, um, I come home, like let's say I come home a couple days earlier or something like that, and my, my house is like popping with this like crazy party. Okay? And, you know, like, I've told them it's okay to have some people over, but, like, this is like a party, right? And I, I start, I'm like, I come in, and I'm a little too shocked to say anything at first, and I, like, there's other staff members there, like, 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 Lloyd is standing on the counter in my kitchen, and, like, Jean, <laughs> like, Jean is, like, doing something weird with the fireplace, and I'm like, oh my gosh, what is going on? And so, so, like, you know, what am I, I all of a sudden I start going, like, whoa, shut that thing off. Like, I'm cutting, I go downstairs, I cut the power, and I'm like, what are you people doing? You need to get out of my house, and they're like, this isn't your house. This is Luke's house. You need to get the heck out of here. Best with our party. I was like, they're like, did you bring any more beer? I'm like, no, get out of my house. And they're like, this isn't your house. I'm like, it's weird that you don't think it's my house because I know where everything is. And you see the picture on the wall with the lady in the white dress and the guy with the tuxedo? Yeah, that's me and her. That's my wife because we're married because we put that picture up there because it's my house, right? And they're like, you're old, man. I'm recording that, right? I'm like, oh. 
And then, like, and then I'm like, Lloyd, Gene, Luke, tell these people it's my house. And Luke's like, I don't know who you are. I don't know what you think you're doing. And I'm like, and, the, and, and I'm like, okay, well, uh, I may have to call the police. And Luke's like, oh yeah, I already called the police on you, man. You're nuts. Right? And the police show up, and I'm like, these people are taking over my house. And they're like, well, no, they all say that you're taking over their house and that you're a little nutty. We're going to have to take you for an evaluation. And they cuff me and take me away, right? And what is going to happen when I get this straightened out down at the precinct? It's going to be bad. It's going to be as bad as it can be. Because they know it's not their house on some level. And the very people that should have known, that had plenty of primary, previous, clear, direct revelation as to who I was, the staff, they are especially in trouble. Because they should have known better. And they, it's even twice a tragedy, not only that they didn't realize this wasn't their house, but that the staff doubly didn't know I was the guy that lived there. Now here is, here is the, the reason why I tell you those two stories. Every person believes Jesus is one of those two people. Every person believes Jesus is either the nutty guy who crashes the party or the guy that comes back to his own house that's a mess. If you believe that Jesus is really demanding, that you don't really like his commandments, you know, commandments that like don't have sex before you get married and then only have sex with your spouse when you're married, that sounds to people like, why aren't there more cats? Right? If that's how you feel, what you really think about Jesus—I don't care if you say you're a Christian or not—what you really think about Jesus is he's the crazy guy in the first story. That's what you think. And it's—that's just where you are. I'm not here to judge you. I act that way half the time. But that's what you think. And if you believe that, as John says, he, the Word of God became flesh and came to that which was his own. And the problem was his own didn't recognize him and wouldn't receive him. I didn't create the alliteration. John did. Though it's probably not alliterated in Greek. That is the bottom line. And if that is true, you believe Jesus is the guy in the first story, and you're kind of like, dude, you, I, I'm tracking you. This indignation thing you're doing, this, I'm, I'm tracking with you. It's like the one guy at the party is like, this really isn't our house. Like, I get why he's pissed. <laughs> That's what you'd say if you had alcohol. Anyway. So let me correlate that with two claims in this passage. There's two things that happen when we think, really think Jesus is the guy in the first party. That Jesus came into our world and is imposing on us, as opposed to him coming to his world and taking command of that which is his own, for his own redemptive purposes. Because here's the silly little secret. The guy in the second story wants to shut down this party, not so he can just throw everybody out of his house, but so he can reboot it the right way. That's why. He wants them all there. He wants everybody at his house. He wants to throw a party. He wants to reboot the whole thing, but he's not going to do it that way. He's not going to do it ugly. There's going to be dancing, there's going to be joy, there's going to be fun, there's going to be food, and it's going to be good, but he is going to reboot the party. It's going to go his way. Everybody's going to be welcome. Everybody's going to be treated well. Everyone's going to be loved. Everyone's going to enjoy themselves. It's going to be beautiful. But because they think he just wants his house, 
they will come up with reasons why that's not even legitimate, and they will not believe that he really wants to produce something better in the end than the, than the craziness they've jerry-rigged for themselves. And because of that, John says there's two effects that happen within humanity broadly that happens with almost everybody. One is, is that when the Savior comes, either, either literally in the story of John or figuratively pointing forward to how Jesus comes into our lives, that we don't recognize him. Right? That, that the standard event in every human heart is that Jesus comes and we don't recognize him. And the ignorance, the whole Gospel of John and all the Bible argues, is willful. It's not inadvertent, like, oh, I didn't know that. It's, we really don't want to recognize him, and so we don't. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, The true light that gives light to every man was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. And it's very easy to read over in this verse the claim that it's making about the light and the world, and that is this. That it says the true light, that's the word who will become Jesus, that gives light to every man was coming into the world. That gives is in the past tense. So that could mean either when he comes into the world, he'll give light to every man, or it can mean he already gives light to every human being, and now he's coming into the world in a special way to give that light either in a different way or more. It's ambiguous there, but the next sentence solves it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Meaning, past tense, look, he was already in the world. And it was evident that he was the light of the world because he created everything, and the creation should have recognized its creator. Now, you might say, well, Nick, I've heard secular arguments for why we don't really need to believe that there was a God involved in, in, in creation. I realize that there's a wide academic argument related to that, and it's very interesting. John's claim is the reason we find it so confusing is it's willful. That if we didn't willfully not want to know of the Creator, we would actually walk outside and we would be stunned and astounded and believe that there was a Creator. And then we would go through the work of understanding how he utilized natural processes or direct intervention in order to produce what exists. But we would start with like, whoa. And we would receive the light of that thing. So the claim here is there was already plenty of light in the world. There's already plenty of light in the world. We just didn't see it. And one of the mistakes I think people make is they believe that when Jesus then became incarnate, the Son became incarnate in the man Jesus Christ, that it was just more light closer. And I don't think that's right. Um, Luke's going to come up here and help me. Why don't you come up here, Luke? Um, I want to— I want to— um, Interns get to do this stuff. To, to, to do a little— um, a little, a little experience to try to show how this works. So Luke's going to stand right here on that metal thing and face me. And then I've got these three lights. So I've got these lights that aren't good for anything, um, but people like to put them on lanyards and advertise their company. So it's just a little—that little guy, right? And then I've got this one, which is the um, light that looks like it would be bright on Amazon, but it's not really when you get it. <laughs> and then I've got the 210 lumen— walleye fishing light that my son hasn't dropped into Lake Monona yet. So, so Luke is going to look at me, and I'm going to shine these at him, and he's going to tell me on the basis of which has more light, um, which light I'm shining. Okay? okay? And, okay, put this on your head first. 
I cleaned it out, I promise. <laughs> All right, you ready? So just tell me which light I'm shining at you. All right, how about now? I can't see it. You can't see? No. All right, you want to guess? Uh, headlamp light. Okay. Which one am I not shining at you? I don't remember all of them. Okay. <laughs> you did such a great job. You're learning so much here. Give me a hand. Learning, learning so much. See, when, when Jesus comes, when this, the word comes as the man Jesus, he, it's not just more revelation. It's not just, well, let me turn the lamp up. Because when you have a bucket on your head, moving from an LED light to a spotlight really doesn't make a bit of difference. You actually need a fundamentally different kind of thing. You need the light to become something that talks, to say, hey— Dude, take the bucket off your head. The light has to confront us. It has to come after the thing that keeps us blind. It has to come and show us what the tragic thing is happening so, such that we can't see. And at the same time, be light. And, and you see this all through God's special revelation through human beings. That's essentially what a prophet is. You can read the entire Old Testament, every prophet God ever sent, and you could summarize their message to this. Take the bucket off your head. And in some ways, you can summarize most of the message of Jesus with, hey, take the bucket off your head. And that's, that's the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is saying to us, hey, there's light. And you're angry that there's not more light. And you feel like I'm being really demanding, partly because you don't see the light that would make clear the thing I'm telling you to do. And because you can't see it, and you can't see the light shining on it, and you can't see what it is, you're upset about how I'm talking about it, and you think very basic commands of normal wisdom that you would totally get if you actually trusted me sounds like, let's get more cats and birds in here. And I get that, but it's because there's a bucket on your head, and what you need to do is take the bucket off your head. And that is why Christian salvation is by faith and not works, because this is fundamentally a question not of how good you are. It is a question of recognition. The answer has to fit the problem. The problem isn't you're not good enough. The problem is we think Jesus is the crazy guy at the first party and that he didn't come to his own, that he came to our own, and he didn't come to his world, he came to our world, and we think he's nuts, and he's not nuts, and it's because, not because he hasn't taken his medicine, it's because we have a bucket on our head! And you've got to take the bucket off your head! Okay, the second thing is, 
that not only will we not receive him, not recognize him, we won't receive him. And you can see this in verse 11. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. And there's a lot of things that could be said about this. And a lot of commentators believe that his own there actually refers to the Jewish people. That is, the people who know the most about him. I actually don't think that's right. But he comes to that which was his own. I think that covers everything. I think it's all of creation, every human, every place, including the Jewish people, including everybody. He came to his own. His own didn't receive him. And here's why that's critically important. And it shows again why salvation is by recognition and receiving, not by earning. Because the question has to do not with whether or not you're good enough. It has to do with whether or not you will accept that God is God. All of salvation just comes down to that. Will you accept that God is God? And will you then act accordingly through faith? That is the recognition that God is God. That is this. There is a moment in party number two where if you are in the, that party and you admit it's not your house, it's the crazy guy, it's the angry guy's house, and he has every right to be angry. <laughs> And everything he said has been accurate. And you have been obstinate and insolent in denying it. There's a point where if you simply utter the words at whatever volume, if he can hear them, yeah, you're right. Or it's your house. It's over. <laughs> it's just over. Like the, all the resistance, all the games, all the playing, all the posturing, all the activities, all the music volumes, whatever mix you made, all the booze, all the fun, all the whatever, it's all—you've given up the farm the minute you say, you're right. The minute you say, yeah, it's your house. It's over. The conversation is over. And that's why you won't receive him, really. And me. It's why I will receive him and then act like I haven't. All of humanity— Knows, And this is why we have such clever games. Whether they're secular or sacred games, it's why we have such clever games. Because the minute we come to confession, the minute we actually confess what Jesus said is true, that he has come to his own, and there's plenty of light in the world. And if we'll take the bucket off of our head, we will see it. And he is the one in charge. And he is the word, the creator, who is here to move and redeem and change and lead. The minute we go, yeah, that's right. That's it. The old is gone and the new has come. You might as well call it something like being born again. Or a new creation or taking out a heart of stone and putting it— you might—I mean, call it whatever you want, but it better be radical, it better be cataclysmic, because it's over. And the reason—I mean, think about it. You're in an argument. What's the one thing you won't do? Concede. It's the one, it's the one thing we'll never do. You never concede. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Because once you say, yeah, you're right, what happens? It's over. And you see, the whole conflict here, John is saying, and then later Jesus is saying, and the whole Bible says, is that— it is the, hum the tragic place of the human will and its willful ignorance putting itself in a place where it doesn't have to recognize the word so that it would never have to receive him. So that in that game, we can say, my life. 
And it's when we recognize and we, you know, when Jesus says, hey, can I take that off? Can we take that off your head? See? And we go. We, re- we recognize, and then we realize we have to receive that our sin game is broken. Our tactic is going to go away. We, we've lost our control. But it was a mythology anyway. We never had control. We weren't ever really in charge. And by trying to have our fun, we were taking the lowest possible thing we were meant to enjoy and trying to prop it up so it could keep us happy forever when it wasn't even meant to keep us happy for 20 minutes. Whether it is the great mythologies of the past or the, um, the plays and art that we create or, or even just the stories parents tell their kids, um, there is a place in all of human society for what you can call tragic warning stories. Stories that say, this is what human beings do. Normal humanity will always do this. And it's a tragedy. It creates a tragic consequence. So, for example, in the story of Achilles, Achilles knew that he was invincible. He knew he had a heel that could be hurt, but he knew he was invincible, and so he was given to pride until somebody figured out how to take him down in his pride. And he was poisoned in his heel, and he died. Because there's a great danger to pride. Even the person, Achilles, with the greatest reason for confidence— still fell at the hands of pride. Pride is among us all. It's in us all. It wishes to take us all. And at every moment, you have to see it at your door and be vigilant against it and believe that it fills you, and therefore it's the only way that you might overcome it and embrace humility, right? Romeo and Juliet, right? Why did those two teenagers die? Because they were idiotic teenagers? Yes, yes, they were idiotic teenagers. But all teenagers are idiotic. Why did these two die? Right? The story actually isn't about the kids. Kids fall rapturously, infatuatingly in love all the time. They're programmed for it. Why did they end up killing each other? And they they killed each other because two families thought that they could manage their anger and their wrath and their unforgiveness and their self-righteousness. They could feud for generations and they could be right. And they thought that they could plan and they could care for and they could manage the consequences of the hatefulness inside them. And then two of their kids fall in love and they can't manage that and they end up killing each other because they're trying to find a future together. And yeah, are they idiotic? Absolutely. But who caused their death? Two unforgiving, godless families that spoke in religious language. Because wrath is in us all. Unforgiveness creeps in every heart. And we have to hear the stories of its tragedy so that we can be believers in it. We can recognize it and receive that truth, and we can grow in our vigilance against it. But this is the greatest one. This is the greatest tragic warning for all of human existence. It is, John's point here is not to say, he says all of humanity doesn't recognize and doesn't receive Jesus. He says that basically. All, all of creation doesn't recognize him, doesn't receive him. You don't recognize him. You don't receive him. Why does he say that? Is it to be like, hey, the stock market's going to go up, but you won't have bought the right stock. (laughs) Right? That's not the point, is it? It's not the point. The the point is—sorry. The point is, is that when you put all of humanity under the tragedy of their real condition, 
Some will recognize and receive its truth and escape it. That's why. Tragic myths, tragic stories, tragic tales, parental advice, it has to be everyone. Everyone's like this. Why, why do we say that? So that, because everybody believes they're an exception. And if you don't believe everybody's like this, you're certainly not like this, because you've got the selfish bucket on your head, and you think that you're the only one like yourself. Because there's no wisdom in sin. And it's only when we say, listen, here's what human beings do with God. They will not recognize him. They will not receive him. They will act like their life is theirs, like this world is ours, and that God can do whatever he wants, but he's really an imposer and a poser and trying to enter in our lives. And Jesus comes and says, it's actually not right. What happens is all of humanity is an idolater and treasonous against the true ruler. They are a squatter in the very household of God, seeking to take over his own country for themselves. And then when he demands that they recognize him, they claim as though it isn't even his, and he has no right to be there and no right to direct their affairs, and has no loving purposes for them, no caring designs, and no redemptive attitude. And that is what humanity is like, and that is what you are like. And then, so that you and I would know that that is meant to be a tragic warning, he puts, he puts a couple verses between these verses. And it's these. So this, we talked about this verse and that verse, and he says this. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet, to all who did receive him, we don't, we don't know how many people those are. All we know is it's everybody who would. That's all we know. We know it's everybody who would recognize and receive. Anybody who would do that. To everyone who did receive him. What does receive him mean? To those who believed in his name. That is, they look at Jesus, the word, and they say, you are who you say you are. I'm wrong. This isn't my house. In fact, if you want to know how to become a Christian, imagine you're in that second party, and Jesus is like, dude, this is my house. What you would say to him when you conceded. You're right. This is your house. I do belong to you. Everything is from you. This is your life. I was totally wrong. Will you please forgive me? I want to be part of the party you're going to throw when you throw us all out of here. That's what it looks like. You do that to the actual living God who is really there. And it's laid out like this, that everybody doesn't recognize and receive, but everybody who does can become a child of God can become redeemed, can be saved, can be born again, can receive a heart of flesh instead of a heart of stone. Oh, whatever. You want to call it? Call it whatever you want. It's said that way so that you would hear it with wisdom as a tragic warning that just says, listen, it's weird, but everybody just wears a bucket on their head. Everybody just walks around with a bucket on their head, and they're like, why is it dark in here? And why, uh, why can't I see anything? And somebody should have turned the light on. And I don't really, can't tell everything about why everybody wears a bucket. But everybody wears a bucket on their head, and they just live and die that way, and it's a tragedy. And then, after he said everybody like nine times, he goes, why don't you take it off? Why don't you take the bucket off your head? Why don't you accept the claim of Jesus that he was the, is the creator of everything, including you, and he has come to that which was his own, 
And you have to recognize him and you have to receive him. And an entirely new view of everything in the world will open up when you do that. And if you are someone who professes to be a Christian already, it is even more ironic to say, you're right, Jesus, this is your house, except for that bathroom. Right? If you're going to argue, argue on that the whole house is yours, okay? Let's, just, let's learn something from a true pagan, right? If you're going to argue with Jesus whose house it is, go, it's, it's all or nothing, it's a house. So you should be like, no, it's my house, and just keep saying, no, it's my house. The minute you go, no, it's your house. You can't be like, except for that closet and that thing. Because once you concede, you lose. So you can't be like, yep, Jesus, it's your house, but I'm still going to talk to everybody at work kind of how I want to. It's still cool for me to gossip. I'll do what I want with my money. How I treat my spouse doesn't matter. I don't really need to be there for those friends. As long as they're not, they haven't done anything for me lately. What, I don't care what it is. But it's so easy to be judgmental and be like, man, you guys think that this world belongs to you. And then yet, we like literally act as though most of our life belongs to us. And one of the reasons why people don't become Christians is because we act that way. And it looks really weird. Because it's actually weirder than their position. So as the band comes up and as we sing this last song, um, I, I want to invite you to respond somehow to the claim Jesus is making in the Gospel of John that you're his. He's come to that which is his own. That you're meant to recognize him for who he is and receive him for who he is. And if you haven't done that at all, you're meant to do that. And you're meant to do it actually as soon as possible because life without the bucket on the head is actually pretty good. But also he demands it of you. And if you're a Christian, if you've conceded, you've conceded. If Jesus is who he says he is, he's who he says he is. And I know that you want to hold on to some things and maintain control over some things because you really believe Jesus is going to fail you. And when that happens, you want to have some comforts in your life and securities and pleasures that you've maintained on the side for when he fails you. I get that. I feel that every day. I know what that's like. I inexplicably will be writing my sermon and, and be shopping for something on Amazon, and I have no idea why. And it's, and we're, we're all programmed like that because the human heart wants to go back and re-argue what we've already conceded because we don't know how to be free, because we don't know how to really die so that we can have a new life. But you have to die the whole way. And if Jesus was right in Mark 9, 23, you have to do it every single day. So as you sing, will you think about that? Will you pray about that? Will you talk to Jesus right now? And if you have to either come a long way back with that, or if you've never done it before, um, there's going to be some folks up here right at the end after we get done um, who would really like to talk with you and pray with you and talk with you about how you can do that and take those steps. Let's end with prayer. Father, I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, you'd come and you'd move and you'd teach and you'd Alive and I pray for people who have feel like they have still like intellectual questions and, and, and functional questions about this and and truth-based questions about this I pray that you'd you'd lead them forward to ask questions I don't want anybody to check their mind away And yet we pray that you'd help us to face the fact 
that we are not floating rationalities and that we have dark hearts and that we love the bucket on our head and we think that you're coming into our life and storming what belongs to us. And I pray that you teach us all an entirely different definition of the word my. We pray in Jesus' name.